science. Hi, I'm Mark Thornton. Welcome to the Stories from Science podcast. It's a chance for anyone to meet the people who do amazing things in science across Oxfordshire's Science Vale. We discover their stories, learn what inspires and frustrates them, and ask the question, what do you actually do all day? Stories from Science In episode one of our interview with Professor Frank Close, theoretical physicist, award-winning science communicator and now emeritus professor of physics at Oxford University, we talked about his life popularising scientific ideas, from his Royal Institution Christmas lecture in 1993 to roles including Head of Communications at CERN. In episode two, we dig into Frank's life as a writer, both as the author of best-selling science books such as Neutrino and The Infinity Puzzle, to his latest books that examine the history of the atomic spies. We discuss the background and content of his latest book, Trinity, about the extraordinary life and the secrets that still persist about nuclear spy Klaus Fuchs. Trinity was published in 2019, but this interview was recorded in 2018, which explains some anomalies in our timing references. But then, perhaps that's appropriate for someone who has spent his life studying the often weird world of space and time in such fundamental detail. Well, I'm Frank Close. I was for 30-odd years a research physicist in particle physics. And in the last 10 years, I've increasingly become a writer, mainly about physics, particularly the history of physics. And I've become interested in the sort of Cold War, Second World War, the atomic spies and uh, the development of the atomic and hydrogen bomb and trying to dig out the secrets that even today, 60 years afterwards, it seems that um, the authorities are reluctant to let us know. Okay, well, we're, we're, I'm, I'm going to be intrigued to, uh, to ask you about that as we, as, as we go on. I wish I'd be able to tell you anything about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all still top secret. Mm. Um, what, what I'd like to do... There's so much in your life, um, and the danger is that we won't be able to, well, we certainly won't be able to pack it all in. So I'd like to start with sort of Oxford University, if you like, and work outwards from there. Um, so what, what is your, you, you're, you're an emeritus professor at Oxford. So what does that, to someone like myself, Oxford University is a ter- terribly exciting and romantic place where, you know, people sort of walk around and, and, and people listening to this might think that, that you know, to work at, at a place like Oxford University, is is is, is you're living the dream there. But is is the reality more prosaic? What 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 is your role at, at Oxford, and what do you do on a day to day basis? Well, I moved to Oxford in two thousand and one, and I was at Exeter College and in the physics department, and then I retired a couple of years ago, and that's why I now have the title emeritus, which means that um, I'm still a member of the faculty. I'm a member of the college. I use the facilities. Um, but I'm no longer paid by them, basically. So I, I carry, on, <laughs> carry on doing much the same as I did before, but without getting paid. <laughs> um, but what I'm doing, uh, what I enjoy most at the moment is the fact that at Exeter College, which is um, adjacent to the university's heart, the, uh, for those who know Oxford, the Radcliffe Camera, that um, building that looks like... Uh, St Paul's Cathedral's dome that is right there in the centre of Radcliffe Square, that is just uh, at the end of the Fellows' Garden. And from the room that I have up on the first floor, I can look right through the Fellows' Garden with the Bodleian Library on one side, Brasenose College on the other side, and Radcliffe Camera 
in the distance and it's beautiful I've got a desk there that I sit and I write my books and think about and uh, that I couldn't beat I think it's probably the best office in the UK it sounds uh, fantastic yeah and, and presumably occasionally thinking you're in an episode of Morse or something like that. <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting you say that because when I was uh, when I was fully employed at Exeter, my office was in a different place. It was uh, down in the main quadrangle. And uh, about 10 metres away from my front door was the spot where Morse had his final moments of collapsing <laughs> oh, yeah. dramatically in that episode. Uh, and the thing that is somewhat, or was somewhat... Uh, Annoying was the prevalence of visiting tour groups who would come from all around the world, and I wouldn't understand a word of what the tour guide was saying to them. They'd be going, <laughs> So the fact that the college had been there for about 700 years with beautiful chapel, beautiful buildings, <laughs> the fact that Morse had it's sort of cashed his chips <laughs> into that spot seemed to be the most important thing. And that was it for the... So as far as the tourists, tourists were concerned, you, you, all that 700 years of history were really just a sort of backdrop for this, that, uh, absolutely. this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, Exeter the College itself has got a great literary tradition. Um, Philip Pullman uh, yeah. was a student there. Uh, and then going back uh, greater distances, Tolkien, I suppose, is the famous one that one would think of. I'm not sure that I fit into that category. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I... I uh, if you, in terms of fitting into a category, one of the big things now in science is outreach and science communication. And um, it seems that uh, increasingly students in all universities are being asked to, 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 to do more of, of, of whatever outreach science communication is. I would argue that you're the, you're the daddy of science communication. You may, you may disagree, but... Well, at least you didn't say the granddad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No. If I may have crossed that one out in my notes. But looking back, if you're trying to pick a theme of, of, from your life, I think having that passion and trying to communicate science to people would, would be a very, very big theme of your life. I'm, I'm sure you're right there. Um, in a way, it was slightly accidental. It goes back um, the late 70s. And I was part of the British delegation going to a conference in... Tbilisi in Georgia and just before we went I was contacted by Nature magazine. Now in Nature they have this or they had uh, a section called News and Views which is where a scientist would describe what was going on in their particular field but written at a level that scientists in other areas would be able to, to follow it. And they asked me to write a report on the conference. And I think they just chose me because maybe my name was the first in the alphabet. <laughs> but anyway, they, they did. Um, and that was quite good because it made me concentrate on the conference and ask myself questions about what's the really important things going on here okay. and so on. Um, and I wrote it up. And then they sent me a cheque for £35. Now, we're talking real money here. In the <laughs> I thought, oh, this is all right. You know, I'll do another one. Um, so it, became sl it was a slightly accidental beginning. Um, but then it developed because the 70s and 80s in physics, in particle physics, were a very exciting time. It was when the, uh, when the beginnings of what we now call the standard model began to get founded. The discovery of things like the W boson, the Z boson, which are the carriers of one of the, the weak force of nature. And so I wrote about those uh, for nature and I also started writing about them for the Guardian 
because in those days Tim Radford was the editor of the, the science editor in the Guardian, and he was very very good, because what I started doing was writing probably three or four times a year uh, an article for that, and I would always very carefully compare what he published as against what I had sent him. And so I would start noticing, like, you know, a few words have been changed or half a sentence had been thrown away or a semicolon had come in. And I started asking myself, you know, why was he doing that? And I began to realise, uh, subliminally, I was getting a free education in how to write and edit. Um, I didn't appreciate that at the time, but uh, Tim Radford, I think, played a very big role in teaching me how to write. Um, the other thing that I then did was I wrote a book called The Cosmic Onion, which was a popular book about um, atomic physics, particle physics, starting from the end of the 19th century up to the present day. And my idea for doing this also showed how naive I was at the time. This was the era, it was just after Stephen Weinberg had written his book The First Three Minutes, which is the title suggests was not about sex but it was about the beginning of the universe <laughs> and it was a, I think it was perhaps maybe the first really big seller in the physical sciences right. I mean the double helix had, uh, had come out in the biological area but uh, Stephen Weinberg's book was great it was a bestseller and I thought oh I'll do the same for particle physics so I wrote my cosmic onion so we, did I, you have that in your mind did you think I, I can I can write a, a bestseller, or did you? Did was it more a case of I can write something similar to that in that style? No, I, I'm a sort of modest person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought I can write a bestseller. <laughs> 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 um, I really can't recall at no, uh, this no. distance exactly what it was, but I do know the reason I mentioned Weinberg is that certainly what he had done motivated me to do the same for particle physics. But then my mistake was to send my manuscript to the people who had published his book. Now, from where I was sitting, I knew that particle physics that I was writing about was very different than the story that Stephen Weiberg had written about. But from the publisher's point of view, A, this was the same area, B, they had just produced their bestseller, yes. they're not going to do another one. Um, and... What happened, somehow I found an agent, I don't quite recall how that came about, um, who uh, sent it around various places and they all said no. Uh, and then uh, the agent said to me, I found somebody at Heinemann Educational and they say, that, they didn't use these words, but you know, the, the book was a dog's breakfast, <laughs> but they thought there was something there. And if I was prepared to be sort of hauled over the coals and so forth, um, that they would tell me. I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. And actually, that was probably the best thing that ever happened because I basically didn't know how to write. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I knew how to, to write articles and things, but I didn't know how to pitch a popular book because up to that point, I had been writing popular versions of what was happening in my field so that geologists and chemists and other professional scientists could read it or public who were very seriously interested in science like right. those who would read the guardian pages but what i had done with cosmic onion i was trying to get everybody so some parts of it were written at a very noddy level so that a five or six year old might get yep. it other parts were written and i was trying to prove to my Peers that I knew what I was writing about, and all bits in between. And, I mean, you, you, you were know, trying to hit every single exactly, yeah. and so you can't do that. So the editor really tore it apart and uh, 
told me uh, what was wrong with it and what I should be doing. And actually, I went away and I think in three weeks, um, I completely redid it. Wow. So what finally appeared as the Cosmic Onion was a, a three-week effort based upon... It's like, a bit like an iceberg. I mean, you know, there's a huge amount below, below the surface that had gone on in the past before I actually got around to writing it. Um, I think the key thing, though, made it was um, the use of little cartoon characters. Because when I was a kid, I remember reading... There were some comic strips that we used to get... Um, Rupert the Beric, I think it was. And this consisted of a series of little cartoon images with yeah. speech bubbles. But underneath, you could have the text, you know, and I always read the speech bubbles. And I must say, I've even talked to people at Oxford who are like professors of English literature, and they all say, we read the speech bubbles too. <laughs> you know? So I, I sort of wanted to do part of it like that. So I had these little cartoon characters to represent the different varieties of quark. Mm. Um, and the inspiration for that in part was um, my elder daughter, Katie. She had been given, when she was a young baby, um, a, a feeding bowl. And in this feeding bowl was a ceramic... There was a beautiful little painting of a sort of dwarf Father Christmas sort of dumpy character. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, that's a quark. You know? So I, I used that as the motif for a quark and I had this character standing with its finger pointing in the air to be the up quark or standing upside down in its hands with a down quark and took it from there. So I used uh, you know, images of the proton, which is two ups and a down, which sounds pretty boring, but two of these little characters dancing upwards and one standing on its hand was something you could immediately see. So people could look at the images and visualise what was happening yeah, yeah, yeah. as much as, as reading it. But this must have been... That's, I mean... That this is before horrible histories. This is oh, before yeah. those kind of. Yeah. The, now that's that's for it. You you must have been a real pioneer in using that to explain the the most difficult concepts in physics. Now you're making me really depressed. What you're saying is, <laughs> I've had the idea of horrible histories and made a fortune. <laughs> Stories from science. Um, I I've written originally about particle physics and gradually move myself away from that. I suppose around 2000 when I became interested in this whole question of the Higgs boson. And I started focusing on symmetry and asymmetry. I mean, the, the world isn't symmetric. If it was completely symmetric, it would be boring. It, things wouldn't happen. It's the, it's the bits that make the friction that make things happen. And that became interesting to me. And that's when I wrote Lucifer's Legacy. And that ends up with particle physics. But... I thought, if I jump straight into the Higgs boson here, nobody's going to read this. Yeah. Um, and so I asked myself a bigger question about why is it we like symmetry? and How prevalent is symmetry? And what is symmetry? Um, and what is asymmetry? And so on. And I then became fascinated in biology and arts and so forth. So along the way, I learnt areas of biology that I hadn't read before. But I wasn't writing this as a biologist. I was increasingly... You know, I was on one particular aspects mm. of this um, how I came to this modern period of the last five six years of getting involved with atomic spies as in many things is a series of accidents the first thing was um, that a physicist called Ray Davis uh, died in 2002 I think it was around then um, he won the Nobel Prize at the age of 87 having spent 40 years of his life trying to detect neutrinos, little particles coming from the sun. And many people thought it would not be possible, but 
eventually he proved that it was. And fortunately he lived long enough to, to get the award. And I wrote his obituary in The Guardian and his obituary actually won the Science Writers Prize that year for the best science communication in a non-scientific context, because obviously obituaries are not usually scientific. Now, the thing was that I was very pleased and honoured to win it, but you know, Ray Davies' story, it would, I, I felt it didn't matter who wrote it, it was such an amazing story, it would win anyway, you know. Um, but from that I thought, why don't I actually write a book about him? Yeah. And so I wrote a book called Neutrino, which... Oxford University Press published, and that's it's a fairly modest book, about 40,000, 50,000 words. And that really is Ray Davis's story uh, told in full. In the course of writing Neutrino, I began to discover that behind the scenes there was a physicist called Bruno Ponticorvo who kept appearing. His work on neutrinos was very, very interesting. And he was a physicist that I knew of, that I'd never actually met, um, that for a long time I'd wanted to meet. And just to divert a second to tell you a little story about, about him. Um, I mean, he was one of the great physicists who worked with neutrinos on what's called the weak interactions. Now, when I was a student, um, I had a book of the collected important papers in the weak interactions. And my supervisor, Dick Dallas, one of the papers was by him, so I got him to sign it. And I had this idea of getting people to autograph their papers. So I got this autograph collection in this book. And now Pontecorvo was working at Dubna in, in Moscow. And he had written a paper with a man called Okun. And so I went to this conference in Hungary, where the two of them were due to be, in the hope of getting their autographs. But Pontecorvo was ill, so he didn't come. But Okun was there. So I showed Okun this paper and got him to sign it. And then I said to him, what, what I was trying to say was, um, I also had been wanting to get Pontecorvo's signature, what a pity he wasn't here. But it sort of came across as if what I really wanted to do was to get Pontecorvo, <laughs> yes, you know, yes, yes. and, and yes. you just won second prize. And he said, not problem, I signed for him too. So I have B. Pontecorvo <laughs> written, written in Cyrillic script in that book. Anyway, so Pontecorvo was always interesting to me. So... Um, I then decided, after writing Neutrino, to research and write about yeah. Bruno Pontecorvo. And that is when it became interesting, because Pontecorvo had two lives. One was as a physicist, and one was the enigmatic one, the fact that in 1950, at the height of the Cold War, just after Klaus Fuchs had been arrested at Harwell and sent to jail for spying, Bruno Pontecorvo, who at that stage was also at Harwell, disappears with his family. And this is a mystery that never been solved for 60 years. So I became fascinated in that, in part because... He lived in Abingdon, where we live. Five minutes walk from here, um, but 50 years back in time, 60 years back in time, yeah, yeah. nearly 70 years back in time now. So that's how I became fascinated in Pontecorvo. And uh, in the course of that, met a lot of interesting people. The archivist at Abingdon School, where Pontecorvo's son had been, dug up the archives from the 1950s, and there we find the family is still owning £12, 7 and 6 months. I mean, you can't imagine the thrill when you actually see something totally unexpected like that. Uh, it took, took me back, let me tell a little story about years ago when I was writing a book called The Particle Explosion, and I went to Cambridge to look at Rutherford's papers, and uh, they've got the manuscripts where Rutherford first discovered the idea of the atomic nucleus. But in these papers, there was a notebook and a sheet of paper, a small sheet of paper, slipped out between two of the sheets. And this sheet of paper was pressed flat. 
it was clear that nobody had looked at this in a century. Yeah. And on the outside, there were, it looked like some student writing. You, what it was, you don't know. And it opened up and inside there was Rutherford's writing. He'd obviously needed a piece of paper to write a note on. And it said, Madame Curie says six grams should be enough. That's all it said. <gasps> I thought... Bloody hell. <laughs> exactly. You, you couldn't have put it nicer. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And to me, that was more exciting than even looking at his regular papers because I hadn't anticipated... That was my discovery somehow, you know. It was very... Right. To this day, I've wondered what it was all about. Oh. But, you know, it's that moment. Um, so that's how I was with Pondicorvo. Um, and uh, I spent a lot of time at the National Archives in Kew. And what happened was that somewhere in this period, I made a transition from being a particle physicist writing about Pondicorvo to a military historian chasing <laughs> history because um, a, a wonderful thing happened that, that I realised that although two or three people had written about Pontecorvo, they'd all been military historians. Nobody had come at it from the scientific angle before. And I thought, no, if he did pass information, there must be a scientific footprint somewhere. Yeah. Well, in the course of this, I became aware that at the archives there was... I mean, he disappeared in 1950. And this is just after the decision to build the hydrogen bomb has been taken. He, he didn't work on the hydrogen, he didn't work on the atomic bomb either. Um, but he had some expertise that would have been of relevance to the hydrogen bomb. Now, in the papers at Kew, I discovered that everything was about Pontecorvo after he'd gone. They were all trying to sweep it under the rug. I mean, this was a situation where Klaus Fuchs had been arrested. Everything was terribly embarrassing, and now one of his colleagues has disappeared. And just to be clear, Fuchs had passed secrets Fuchs from, had passed, the, yes. uh, from, the, from, the, from the American atomic bomb. He'd been a conduit, hadn't he? He'd, he'd done the whole lot. He's the theme yeah. of my latest book, which we're going to talk about <laughs> yes. in, in a moment, which I'm going to plug in a moment. I don't hate it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, they wanted to give the impression that Pontecorvo somehow wasn't important. Mm. This was all, don't worry about it, it'll go away. And so a man called Michael Perrin, who was a scientific expert in Whitehall, evaluated what Pontecorvo might have known, what he might have taken with him in his head and so on. And as a scientist, I began to be aware there was nothing at all about the hydrogen bomb in here. It was very odd. And I thought, it looks like hydrogen bomb papers are still withheld, as indeed they are. So I then contacted Peter Hennessy, Lord Hennessy, who I knew from... Uh, other things. He knows his way around the archives and MI5 and the like. And I asked him, and he said, um, Write me a single letter of A4, let me know what you're interested in, I'll see what I can do. So I did, and I thought I'd never hear any more about this. And then in college, I received this beautiful handwritten letter from the House of Lords saying, Dear Frank, did MI5 get back to you after I forwarded them your letter? <laughs> to which the answer is, Yes, they did. And they said that. Um, they couldn't uh, help me with all this H-bomb business, blah, 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 blah. But a file that had been lost had now been found. And this file was the file on Pontecorvo before he disappeared. Oh and so I went back to the archives immediately after Christmas. And most of it was not very interesting. It was just gossip. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. The only evidence, in quotes, they had against Pontecorvo that he might have been a spy was that people said... I heard Mrs. Pontecorvo saying some good things about Stalin at a party. You know, that sort of gossip. <laughs> but there was a sheet of paper in there that I would not have given a second glance at if I'd seen this file 
earlier on. But having been playing this for three years, I knew things inside out and this suddenly hit me. And if you were to ask me, what are the most singular moment of your professional career? I'd say it is this. This sheet of paper was written from the British Embassy in Washington a few weeks before Pontecorvo disappeared. And it said that the FBI were interested in Pontecorvo because of communist reasons. It didn't say more than that. And there was an illusion in this letter that they had consulted somebody in the Washington Embassy and that somebody, it turned out, was Kim Philby. Oh, my God. And it didn't say Kim Philby by name. It referred to the, uh, the SIS's representative. Uh, ding, ding, ding. And I thought, Philby knew. Now, that doesn't prove anything, but as they say, you know, you're 99.9% of the way there. It's clear what happened next. And I think probably one of the most pleasant memories I have is that uh, after the book was published, Half-Life, I gave a presentation to a a select group of a dozen people in the offices of Prospect magazine. And these included um, Lady Pauline Neville-Jones, who was the former chair of the Joint Intelligence Committee, and Lord Jonathan Evans, who was the former DG of MI5. And when I just gave the little remark and that Philby had seen it, there was a, ah, came from that. And that was the moment I thought, oh yeah, okay. I mean, I was flying by wire until that moment, but I realized I had found something that they didn't know. And that was great because that wasn't in my field. Um, So so that was, so somehow, so that book became, in fact, it was in Blackwell's bookshop under military history, not not under physics, though I viewed it as a physics book. Um, so from that, in the course of digging around Kew, um, I started noticing papers relevant to Fuchs. And so what I have been doing now for the last four years, and it's just thankfully finishing will be out next year, um, writing Trinity, because Trinity was the code name of the atomic bomb test, but it also has this other meaning of Father, Son and Holy Ghost. Yeah, yeah. So the father of the atomic bomb the man who first realised it was possible in principle was Rudy Piles, who was my professor at Oxford. The son is metaphorically Klaus Fuchs, because Fuchs was hired by Piles to work with him as an assistant, and Fuchs, who was, uh, had fled from the Nazis, just like Piles had done, lived with the Piles' family. And over a period of years, first in Birmingham and then in Los Alamos, was a great family friend. He looked after the children and, and so forth, and he was almost... Like a son, a family son, Um, which of course gives you a sense of the real sense of betrayal that the Piles family felt when Fuchs was exposed. So that's father and son. So there isn't a holy ghost, but there are the unholy spooks of MI5 and FBI. Because what I began to notice in the papers was that um, they, they had cracked the Soviet diplomatic codes. So in the middle of 1949, They knew that there had been a spy in the British mission at Los Alamos, but they didn't know whether it was Fuchs or Piles. And so the story really was how did they decide it was Fuchs and not Piles? And they followed Fuchs. They were watching him 24-7. They had bugs in his apartment at Harwell. It became clear he was having an affair with the wife of his boss. I have the proof on that. Which you, you imagine the, the hiatus that creates. So yeah, yeah. Here, here you've got a spy having an affair, an established spy having an affair with the wife of the head of the physics department at uh, Harwell, who is himself working on these things. Uh, the things I didn't know, 
um, were that uh, Britain was itself making an atomic bomb, which at that stage was secret and only known to about a dozen people. Not even the cabinet itself widely knew. Um, it was under Bill Penny's authorisation at Fort Halstead, near Sevenoaks, and Klaus Fuchs from Harwell was the go-to man because he knew more about the atomic bomb in the late 40s than anybody. So he was the messenger. He was, well, he, he was a person who had all the information from the war that uh, Penny was consulting regularly. So Fuchs would go across to Fort Halstead maybe once a month secretly. I mean, even Harwell, apart from Cockroft and a couple of other people, uh, Harwell as, as a whole did not know that Fuchs was working on this atomic project because they didn't know there was an atomic project. Um, and he also used that as a way of covering his own tracks, meeting his uh, Russian contacts, which sort of is ironic as well as interesting. But what I have discovered from this, um, and I, I can say this sort of now, I think people by and large are aware of Klaus Fuchs, the spy, having passed the secrets of the atomic bomb to the Russians during the Second World War at Los Alamos. And they may also be aware that he was passing secrets before that period when he was working at Birmingham. And he used to meet this woman uh, out near Banbury to pass the secret. So the fact that he passed the secret of the atomic bomb, I think, is pretty well known. Mm. Though the details of it uh, and exactly what he passed and when and how, this is not. What people by and large perhaps aren't aware of is that there were other spies at Los Alamos at that time. After the war, so if Fuchs hadn't done it, others would have, mm. though Fuchs was critically important. After the war, when he was at Harwell, he continued spying. And that, to my mind, is, was his most dangerous period. Because at that stage, I mean, previously, he'd been dealing with the Russians who were our allies during the war against Nazi. Post-war, we were now in the Cold War environment. Exactly, he knew exactly what the political setup Absolutely. was. That was, a, that was a conscious Absolutely. decision. Well, um, it's interesting as to whether he was changing his mind or not, but what certainly was clear was that Stalin was now, quotes, had designs on Western Europe, and Fuchs was passing information which enabled Stalin to know what the strength of the British ability to build atomic weapons was, as well as the American. Wow. So, apart from the French, who were only really beginning in that, that Stalin had the ability to know exactly what the strength of the, the nuclear threat was, all due to Fuchs post-war. I think that was what his most dangerous period was. And this is in, so, so this is in your book Trinity, yeah. which comes out next year, so yeah. we, will, we will look forward to reading that one. That's Hi everyone, this is Mark, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Just a couple more things before we end the podcast. You can find show notes, links, and other interesting bits and bobs from today's show at www.storiesfromscience.co.uk or just Google Stories from Science. If you enjoyed this and any other episode, then please consider subscribing and leaving a review. Every review helps us to learn and improve and spread the stories we uncover to a wider audience. And it only takes a moment. Thanks for listening and being part of the Stories from Science community. Until next time, goodbye. Stories from Science.